Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. Hi, my name is Dan Prather. I am a father of one, a football coach, and I also work at an automotive shipping and receiving company. I suffer from sleep apnea. I was stopped breathing. I was having over 30 episodes an hour. I didn't know how bad I had sleep apnea until my wife told me I need to get tested because I was keeping her awake. I was stopped breathing, and I was kicking her too much. I met with Dr. Victor. And uh, we did all the tests to verify it. Uh, and I have been on CPAP since then. All sleep great now. You have to get used to the mask. That's people's, that's their main thing. Find the correct mask. I can't sleep without it now, so. You have to take it serious. It can be life and death. And something like that, you cannot fool with. Go see your doctor. You will feel so much better. It doesn't take that long. It's an easy thing. And it can save your life. Your life will be better. Obviously, you and your spouse's life will be better because you won't be sleeping in the other room. You just heard from Dan Prather, a patient of our guest today. We're going to talk today about the importance of sleep. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. Our goal is to help you and your family live smarter and healthier lives. Today we're talking about sleep. Don't snooze me now. We'll talk about sleep apnea, which is what Dan's diagnosis was. We'll also talk about the do's and don'ts of napping, how to get better quality sleep, touch on some sleep disorders, and talk about why sleep is so important. So for myself, I can literally fall asleep anywhere. Yeah, I was one of those people that took the New York City subway and would fall asleep on random strangers' shoulders, yep, with my mouth open, drool coming out, the whole thing. Um, There were days, you know, I was a medical student and I was coming back from a late shift and I had a one-hour train ride because I was coming from Brooklyn to Queens and anyone who's from there knows I took the good old NRW train ending at Dittmars Avenue. I would surely fall asleep on someone. Also, the first time my dad took me to a movie, I fell asleep. The circus... I was sleeping. The last podcast, even, I think I was sharing that I fell asleep behind the wheel. So yeah, I I have trouble. I fall asleep everywhere. But I try really hard to stay awake. So I'm one of those people that blare the radio in the car, put down the windows, chew gum, you name it. I've tried it. And maybe you have too. Clearly, my work and stress level is affecting my sleep. We know one good night's rest is all you need to feel good the next day. But when was the last time you had eight hours of solid, refreshing, uninterrupted sleep? And how much sleep do you really need? You're about to find out. Let me introduce our guest today, Dr. Lyle Victor, who specializes in sleep medicine. He's the director of the Sleep Center at Beaumont Dearborn. Dr. Victor, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So the topic of sleep is just so desperately needed in society today. Like we're so busy, you know, people are always on their phones and it's vibrating and pinging and looking at social media. And, you know, even for myself, I've got friends in different time zones and all over the world. And I feel like our sleep is definitely getting affected. How much sleep does the average person actually need? Well, probably around uh, eight hours. Older adults can get along with about seven hours. But at the turn of the century, before the United States was electrified, 
people slept about nine hours a night. So it looks like over the past uh, century, we've been getting less and less sleep. And it affects people's lives pretty adversely. Yeah, like um, just turning off devices, for example, is so hard for me. So I have, um, I'm on a bunch of WhatsApp groups. I've got people from all over the world. Um, and normally I'd keep my phone off um, because the alarm will go off anyways, even if it's off. But if I'm on call, I leave my phone on so that I can hear the ringer if it, if it goes off. And what happens more often than not is I'm getting pinged and panged by everyone other than my actual patients. And then I have this uninterrupted, like this interrupted sleep. Um, and then I just, it, it's just terrible sleep hygiene. And how do I make sleep a priority? And what would you say to our listeners? Well, I think uh, for you, uh, it's well to know that you need about 20 minutes of uninterrupted sleep to get any benefit from that portion of sleep. So when you look at a resident's life and they're getting called every 10 minutes, they might as well just stay up all night because if you're getting interrupted at 10 minutes, you're not getting enough time mm -hmm. to actually get any benefit from that sleep. So if you have to get interrupted, try and do it pretty intermittently and get a few hours sleep in, in between interruptions, which of course you can't do because you're on call and you don't control that. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about um, being in the medical profession and sleep. But just to kind of track back a little bit, when we talk about sleep, is it different for men and women? Well, women sleep a little bit lighter, um, and they actually have some protection from estrogen female hormones when they're younger so they don't get some of the disorders like sleep apnea. But they do sleep a little bit lighter. They have more interrupted sleep, and which then, is a good thing if you have children. The yeah. men sleep through the child's crying, but the women wake up. That's, that's good. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about dreams? Uh, do dreams affect how well you sleep? Well, if you're having nightmares, they may wake you up. But uh, generally, dream sleep is about 20% of the night. And during dream sleep, you actually become a reptile. You don't control your body temperature. Your body temperature turns out to be the temperature of the room. And that's why on maybe a warm night, you may wake up sweating because uh, you've fallen asleep and your body temperature starts uh, approximating the room temperature you'll wake up. Yeah, that's interesting. What am I, you know, you're talking about that. A lot of people talk about night sweats. Um, like they sleep through the night, but they wake up and they're, you know, drenched in sweat. Is, does that have anything to do with the quality of sleep that they're getting over the night? Well, sometimes you can have a lot of sweating at night if you have sleep apnea. And during episodes where you're not, where you're not breathing so well, you may do some sweating because you have discharge of adrenaline. And then does sleep affect your immunity? Not getting a good night's sleep uh, over a period of time can reduce your immunity, and they've shown that when people get um, immunizations, it doesn't take as well if you're sleep-deprived. So, yes, it affects your immunity. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so when I was a resident, we would have this lecture um, every year, and then when I came over to be a teaching attendant, we had one teaching attendant. His name was Dr. Rodine, and Dr. Rodine, if you're listening, shout out to you. Um, where he would talk about sleep every year. And I kept thinking to myself, man, this thing called strategic napping is where it's at. And he would talk about how you would, could nap for about 15 minutes instead of 30 minutes because you're not going into that deep sleep yet. And then if you're going to sleep more than five hours, then it was okay. But if you're going to sleep 
less than that? Like, it's better not to nap for an hour. I mean, can we talk a little bit about the do's and don'ts of napping? What's the correct way to nap? And how do you avoid having that sleep inertia issue of being groggy from napping? Well, napping can be a little bit controversial, but you have a certain number of hours that you uh, will you're apportioned for sleep, and all of us are a little bit different. I need about seven hours. Many people need about eight hours. But if you nap during the day and you're a seven-hour sleeper and you nap for a half hour, you're only going to sleep six and a half hours at night. You Mm -hmm. only get seven hours or eight hours, so you can apportion it throughout the day however you want to do it. Okay. One of the things the sleep people recommend is not to sleep very long because when you start cycling through all the different sleep cycles and you get into deep sleep, you can be groggy when you wake up. And you may have that much more trouble getting to sleep at night or staying asleep at night. So if you can avoid napping, it's a good thing. But if you have to work at night, you can take a strategic nap just before you start working. It helps out. And then have you also heard of caffeine naps where um, people will drink, let's say, a caffeinated beverage like coffee or pop or whatever, um, right before they take a quick 15-minute nap so that when they wake up, they are boosted and ready to go? No, I haven't. Uh, doesn't make a lot of biologic sense. Uh, what happens, the longer somebody stays awake, the more they collect adenosine in the frontal part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And the best, and you get sleepy. So as the day progresses, more adenosine, the more sleepy you are. But the biggest antagonist to adenosine is caffeine. Oh, that's And so the United States uh, consumes more coffee than any other place in the world. And you might guess that the coffees that have the most caffeine, Starbucks. Yeah. Check it out. It's a lot of caffeine, unless they've reduced it since I looked last. Look last. Oh, my gosh. So I'm pretty much in trouble because I need my cup of coffee all the time. Well, it's not a bad thing. Just about coffee, every drug has a half-life. So that's the amount of time it takes to metabolize half of the, the drug or half the caffeine. And it depends upon your body, but it could be you. You've metabolized half of it in two hours or one hour or six hours, but they've done studies and caffeine can stay around for 10, 12, 14 hours, and you still have caffeine when you're trying to go to bed at night, even though you had a cup of coffee in the morning. So everybody is different. Some people can drink the caffeine. Other people, when they get older and they come into the office and they complain they can't fall asleep, they tell them they can't uh, be drinking caffeine, you know, they get annoyed. Yeah, it's funny. My my mom can drink like a full cup of coffee and fall asleep right away without any problem. Whereas with me, I am like wired after I have my coffee. Yeah, I don't know. She may be sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about stimulants. So since we are talking about caffeine, like things like, um, you know, energy drinks. And then what about, what about the fact of, so people try caffeine and energy drinks to stay awake. But some people, will, my patients will tell me that, well, before I go to bed, I have a glass of wine and that helps me sleep. Does that truly help you sleep? Or I was always taught that maybe alcohol prevented sleep or, or caused early awakening. Well, caffeine is just never good. Uh, I'm sorry. Alcohol is just never good. It does uh, increase your ability to fall asleep, and then you metabolize it, and you wake up, and then you're up half the night. Mm. So usually alcohol is not helpful. Okay. And then what about sleep aids, things like melatonin or... Um, when do you know if you need something like Ambien or Restoral? And, you know, I, I remember when I would be rounding in the hospital, like a lot of the older patients would be requesting Benadryl to sleep. And so what are your thoughts about those? Well, that's a long list. Let's go down it. Okay, so melatonin. melatonin. Available at, the, you know, the, um, the, some of the 
uh, vitamin outlets. Uh, It depends upon the dosing. You don't know what the level of drug is in any of these things that you're buying because it's not FDA approved. But um, a dose of melatonin between 3 and 8 milligrams, 9 milligrams, um, about an hour or two before you go to bed may make you more sleepy. And then if you take melatonin at other times, and this gets really complicated, it can change your circadian rhythm. Not necessarily a bad thing, but it's tricky to know exactly when to take it. Like So, for example, uh, people who do work night shifts, like many nurses, they will come home and it's light outside. And so they, the people have told me they find melatonin helping them to kind of reset their circadian rhythm so they can actually fall asleep during the day because it's a regular thing for them. So do you find that melatonin is better for people that are sleeping during or trying to sleep during the day or you don't think that really matters? Well, everybody is different, but generally the people that are working nights, number one, you want to drive home not in daylight. So you don't want the daylight to wake you up. So you put on sunglasses and you stay out of the daylight. No, that's a good idea. And then usually people need a few hours to debrief before they go to bed. You know, after we work for eight hours, it's nine hours, and you come home at five o'clock, you don't get in bed and go to sleep. And so if you're working at night, you don't get to bed at seven o'clock in the morning. You may need, well, their so-called evenings. You may need two or three hours in the morning. And then go off to bed. In general, people that work nights get about an hour less sleep uh, than the regular population. A lot of people work nights and then their days off, they go into a day schedule. So their body rhythms are off just a little bit. Um, And everybody is different in their tolerance to that. So I knew when I went to medical school, I wasn't going to be an obstetrician. I didn't mm-hmm. like working at nights. Yeah, getting yeah, called I, and I don't like up. getting wakened up. So I found a perfect specialty. Okay. What a sleep. <laughs> the patient sleep and so do I. I love it. <laughs> uh, what about um, sleep aids like Ambien or Restoral? Uh, Ambien, uh, benzodiazepine, it's a newer one. Uh, it helps you fall asleep. It'll keep you asleep. And some people get sleepy the next day. And in general, um, I don't recommend it. And most people don't recommend it for long-term use. Better to try and stay away from uh, drugs that actually put you asleep or keep you asleep unless you have a compelling reason for it. You're just better off trying to get up at a regular time and go to bed at a regular time. And, do you, and are some of these sleep aids addicting? So that there's that um, kind of fear of if you start using it, you're going to feel like you need to use it all the time? Well, people do get uh, develop a tolerance to it, and they and they can go through withdrawal. And so, some people, uh, addicting is a pretty harsh word, but they do get used to it, and then they can't fall asleep without it, and then they stop it, and they have some rebound insomnia, and they go through three days or four days of withdrawal, and they feel finally better. But so it's 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 tough to be taking these medications. So I have a very large sleep practice. I have alf- almost nobody on oh. sleeping pills. I don't. I just don't do it. I try to do it almost any other way that we possibly can. And for the most part, you can get uh, people to get up at a regular time, go to bed at a regular time, and figure out how much sleep they need. And most people end up not having to use them. Right, and not having to take the Benadryl then, right? Oh, the Benadryl is probably the worst of that group. Uh, the problem is is that you get residual sleepiness during the day, and they've done studies in older people when they have more falls. So Benadryl is not a good one. Okay. And then um, what about sleep disorders? So you know, there's the one thing of like, you know, just not getting enough sleep because, you know, you're too busy or whatever it is. Um, 
But what about when you actually have a condition such as, you know, sleep apnea or narcolepsy, restless leg? When should someone consider being screened for having a disorder? And then how common are these disorders? Well, the the most common disorder you just alluded to is sleep deprivation. So the United States is a uh, sleep-deprived country. And so the first thing is get enough sleep. How much sleep do you need? Well, you look at two weeks where you actually can go to – when you're on vacation, you have a two-week vacation. How much sleep did you get on vacation? Usually it's about eight hours. If you're getting six hours, you're sleep-deprived. Not good. And the reason for it is sleep-deprived people like carbohydrates. They gain weight. They have more stomach ailments. They get into car crashes. Their life is not so hot. So, you know, I can't give you a drug to to help you get less sleep. So you need more sleep. That's number one. So now you mentioned something at the beginning of this interview that really kind of caught my uh, attention. That was when I was a kid, I was always sleepy. I was always sleepy. Well, it turns out children are generally not sleep deprived. Your parents would love for you to go to bed early and sleep for 20 hours and, you know, don't bother me. So it may be that you're a long sleeper, not getting enough sleep. People with narcolepsy, typically when they're narcoleptic, they're, they're sleepy as a child. And so, um, you know, it may be a sign of, of having um, some kind of sleep disorder, such as idiopathic hypersomnia, where you're just somebody that's always going to be sleepy and always going to be tired and when we study in the sleep laboratory, we see you're sleepy, but we don't see narcolepsy. And we say, yeah, you're sleepy. <laughs> yeah, real science sleepy. there. Sleepy, okay. Um, what about... Uh, oh, yeah, so now oh. when do you know you have a sleep disorder? So yeah. if you're sleepy all the time and you're getting enough sleep, <laughs> so you may have a sleep disorder, and the most common one that we treat is sleep apnea, and that is mostly people that are snoring and they're fatigued. And that's very common. We have an overweight population. You gain some weight. The tongue gets a little bit too big. It kind of flops around in the posterior part of the throat. When you're sleeping, it oscillates a little bit. You snore. Maybe you don't, you don't breathe quite as well. It wakes you up. So you're doing that. You're snoring, waking up, snoring, waking up all night long, and you don't feel so hot the next day. And sleep apnea is relatively easy to treat, right? I know a lot of patients that are like, oh, don't test me for that. I don't want to end up wearing a big yeah. mask and all of that. Well, I love the way you put it. It's very easy for me to treat it. <laughs> I, you know, I don't have to wear the mask. Um, but uh, the best treatment is the treatment that almost nobody does, which is lose weight and then the tongue is half fat. You lose some weight, the tongue gets smaller, you get more room back there. Mm-hmm. And then, I, of course, I do, you know, talk to the medical residents all the time about Poissewell's law. And Poissewell's law is, <laughs> you can strike this. <laughs> no, I want to hear the law. <laughs> the flow in the tube is directly proportional to the fourth power of the radius and inversely proportional to the viscosity of the fluid. So that's the only physics that I use in medicine. Okay. But translate that to normal. It translates <laughs> is that the flow in the tube is proportional to the fourth power of the radius. It's not linear. Whereas if the tongue got bigger and you would you don't reduce the flow or increase the flow based on the direct size of the lung, it increases exponentially. So now I feel like I need to look in the mirror and see if I have a fat tongue. <laughs> well, the, the, the takeaway is you don't have to lose very much weight if you're overweight to increase the flow in the back of your throat dramatically. It's the fourth power of the radius. Okay. And so that's why I do that with the residents so they know. 
And then, so if you were talking about losing weight, what about just general exercise? Like, I feel like if I exercise, I sleep very well the next day. But sometimes if I work a late shift and I'm coming home, I'm exercising like nine o'clock at night and it's kind of close to bedtime. And then I don't, I don't feel as sleepy, quote unquote. Well, those are two good points. Number one, exercise helps uh, because the more you exercise, the more deep sleep you'll get that night. And so, yes, it helps to, uh, um, to sleep better by exercising during your day. However, if, if you exercise too close to sleep time, you have all that uh, adrenaline you've built up and you may be hyper and not be able to fall asleep. But certainly exercise during the day, uh, several hours before you're going to go to sleep, will increase deep sleep. It's a good thing. Okay, so now I got a question about sleep environments. So, all right, you see all these commercials about the fancy beds, the adjustable beds, and this yeah. pillow does this and that pillow does that. Like, how important is it to actually have the proper bedding pillow or bed and, you know, the temperature of the room and whether it's light or dark and all of that? You know, you and I as physicians, we, what we have for sale is medical science. If you can prove it works then we can sell it. If you can't prove that it works, then it becomes part of the public domain and people can debate about it on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't sell it. And it may have some value, just nobody has proven it. That's the betting industry. Hmm. And there's a lot of profit to be made because there seem to be a lot of betting stores. And, you know, does a bed go up and does a bed go down? And do I take this pillow and it turns my head to the right? And, you know, <laughs> okay. some of this may have some value, but it really turns out that none of it can be consistently and scientifically proven to work. People and used so to sleep on, on floors and they say like a hard surface on a floor and they have fantastic sleep. Yeah, well, you get sleepy enough. You sleep anywhere. I <laughs> yeah, know. I know that. <laughs> I know that from firsthand experience. <laughs> there you go. Um, you sleep standing up, right? Yeah, yeah it's happened. Um, so one other question I wanted to ask about. Oh, so wait a minute. So you just mentioned that. Uh-huh. It turns out that they did put electrodes on residents during uh, rounds. Oh, you no. Know, and they do find out that the residents with their eyes open are actually going in and out of out sleep. Out of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times I was told in medical school, residency, et cetera, that once you lose the sleep, you can't make it up. Like if I did a 24-hour call the next day, I can't sleep for 24 hours to make up for the sleep before. Is that true? Well, it's partially true. You don't need to uh, make up exactly hour for hour for a sleep loss the next day or two days later to feel well. The next day you may sleep longer, you'll get more deep sleep, the delta sleep, and actually feel pretty good. But in the long term, if you keep losing one or two hours a day, you collect that sleep debt, and that debt has to be paid off uh, long term. And if it doesn't get paid off, then you're sleepy and you have problems with auto accidents, et cetera, et cetera. And is there any connection with uh, deprived sleep and developing dementia later in life? Well, that's a great question, and it turns out that at night you are removing chemicals that develop uh, during the day that can ad adversely affect thinking. So the thought is that you need sleep to kind of purify the, uh, the chemicals that collect during the day while you're awake. And yes, when they take a look at brains of people that are sleep deprived and, and demented, I believe this is in rats, they can see that there is a uh, anatomic substrate to sleep deprivation, 
and it's not too far afield from demented, uh, demented brain. And then the other thing is that, you know, a lot of my friends will say, like, well, you get so many things done during the day. You probably don't need to sleep that much. And well, what do you sleep, like three hours, five hours, you can get by? Is it true that some people can get by with just, you know, limited sleep, five hours, six hours, four hours, and be functional and not have any um, negative consequences? Yeah, they tend to be surgeons. Uh, <laughs> they can get four or, five hour, four or five hours sleep. They get up. It doesn't bother them. They feel pretty good the next day. I mean, they've had people on record that could uh, only only need to sleep a couple hours a night, and they could function during the, the day, and they actually did fairly well. There's a, genetic, uh, a gene for short sleep, hmm. um, but uh, I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you be tested for that? I want to yeah. know if I've got that jinx. Well, if you're sleepy and you, you, you <laughs> don't have to sleep in movies, yeah, yeah, yeah you don't have that gene. <laughs> you know, now, like I said, we've got you know friends in different countries. People are more mobile. How do you deal with things like jet lag? Um, if you're flying to another country and you need to adjust to their time and coming back, so like let's say I'm going on a trip and I'm trying to adjust my jet lag and I'm coming back to work. You know, is it a good idea to take a couple of days off before coming back, depending on the time zone? And, you know, should you be taking your medications the same time that you would in the States if you're here? Or like you now have transitioned to another country and their daytime is now your nighttime. Like, how does that work with sleep? We've asked a lot of really good questions, but the answer the the most important thing that you said, it's always better to take some time off. Mm-hmm. Most people can't. Okay. Yeah. I know. I hate that. I'm one yeah. of those people that, like, if I come back, I come back at midnight, like the day before. I have to go to work, and then I suffer the next day. So it turns out that uh, sleepiness and alertness is based on two things. One is uh, what's called a homeostatic mechanism. I mentioned that before, which is the buildup of adenosine. And the longer you're awake, the sleepier you get, and the more adenosine you have. And then there's a biologic rhythm, which is built into just about every cell of the body, but is mostly generated in the brain. And uh, it it, um, uh, correlates with body temperature. And so some parts of the day, you're going to be more alert than others. And the high alert times, about 11 in the morning and about 6 at night, and the sleepiest times are 4 in the morning and about 4 in the afternoon. So between the circadian that body temperature, uh, which is controlled by light, and the adenosine, we can mostly stay up about 16 hours and then go to sleep. Mm-hmm. But that body temperature falls dramatically while you're asleep. And so the sleepiest time of the day, surprisingly, is at night as that body temperature falls and falls till about 4 in the morning. 4 in the morning. And then when it starts to rise, you wake up. And you're not going to fall asleep at 11 o'clock in the morning because your body temperature is rising. But it tapers off a little bit about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we take a, a coffee break. And South America, they take a siesta. And then the body temperature starts rising again until just before you go to sleep and then it starts falling. So that body temperature controls a lot. Well, your body temperature, when you go to London from Detroit, hasn't had time to change. Hmm. So you get to London... And it turns out that it may be 9 o'clock in the morning there. It's 4 o'clock in the morning to you. You're pretty sleepy. Mm-hmm. So if you wait a few hours and when to get the light is complicated, but light is the biggest zeitgeber, the thing that changes the biologic clock, 
you get some light about 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning there, it's going to help you out and start changing your biologic rhythm. Is that why I hate daylight savings and I wake up, it's dark, and I come home and it's dark? Yeah, for the first few days it can be very difficult because your body temperature hasn't moved an hour. But it only takes a day or two with daylight savings. So for every time zone, every hour that you move forward or back, it takes about a day to get used to it. Um, And then my last question, because I think we're running out of time, is that there's all these new tracking devices with smart technology, like on your phone, it records your movements, your your sounds, you can hear if you're snoring, your heartbeat, respiration. Do you think that's a good idea for people to do that? Like I had a friend that would record like every time they'd sleep and then like send me messages like, listen to my snoring, and they would be obsessed about it, but then wouldn't do anything about it. Well, um, you know, getting back to what can be proven with medical science, but, you know, a lot of these uh, apps uh, have not been checked out medically at all, so we don't know how valid they are. And so I don't like to get involved with any of it because it becomes a medical legal problem when they say, here, take a look at my app and tell me what's going on. I don't know what's going on with those apps. I don't know how accurate they are. But I will say that if you put the, you know, the phone underneath your, your mouth and you're snoring like crazy and you feel tired the next day, I think that's a pretty good yeah. indicator that it's maybe proof. you should do something. You know, when someone says, you're snoring, and they're like, no, I'm not. Well, now you've got proof. You know what? I rely on the guy's wife more than anything. If she drags him into the sleep center and said, you know, he's sleepy and he's snoring, and he says, yeah, I feel great, I think something's going on there. <laughs> All right, Dr. Victor. Thanks so much for your expertise. Uh, any last thoughts that you want to share? Uh, get enough sleep. And the best thing to do is get up at a regular time because that sets your biologic clock. But get eight hours of sleep and things will go well for you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Till the next time, thanks for joining us on the Beaumont House Call. We leave you today with this healthy thought. Falling asleep may seem like a dream come true when you're wide awake, tossing and turning at 1 a.m. We learned today that good sleep is more under your control than you may have thought. Sleep is so important for your health, and oftentimes we don't prioritize it. We learned about napping and ways to help your body gain the rest that it needs. And we also learned about some sleep disorders. If you think you're not getting good quality sleep, be sure to talk to your doctor. Some of the things that Dr. Victor talked to us today about was about changing your sleep behavior. Let's stop counting sheep, send that sweet dream emoji, put that phone away, and get the shut-eye your body craves and deserves. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.